All right, so Craig got five of them. Anyone beat five? All right, super good job, Craig. You have all of our admiration um, for your random sports knowledge. Um, I can respect that. Um, so what does this have to do with studying the Bible? It actually does have something to do with it. Um, all of these things are sports, right? As we look at all of these things, you might, I mean, you might argue curling. Um, now, technically, all of these are sports, right? Everything that we just talked about, what do they have in common? They're all a sport. Um, do all of them use balls? No. No. Um, a lot of them do, um, but not all of them. Um, I think, uh, what do we, um, do all of them take place on a field? No, some of them take place on ice. Some of them take place in water. Some of them take place on a court. Um, all kinds of different surfaces, different number of people playing and participating in them. Some are contact sports, some are non-contact sports, et cetera, et cetera. You get the point. Um, so there's a number of different things. As we go to the scripture, um, what we're going to find, and as we look at it tonight, tonight we're talking about um, something called genre. Genre. And genre is um, like in music or if you took a, a, your literature class, if you want to rewind the last time you took a literature class, genre is just the difference in writing that takes place between different types of literature. And so just like there are different, um, maybe we could call them rules for sports, there are also rules for interpreting different genres. And so when we pick up the Bible, we want to make sure that we're understanding what genre we're reading and be able to identify that and use that as we go through interpreting, observing, interpreting, and then finally applying. So um, first of all, what are Bible genres? What are Bible genres? Um, and so here are, I listed for you um, six, these are the most general genres um, that we know of in the Bible. And so these are not, um, you could get into some maybe weeds and say, well, this is technically, and but primarily you have six major genres. Um, historical narrative, and a historical narrative, um, a narrative is just a story. So these are a true story that's being told. So a historical narrative. Uh, law, and so these are laws. These are regulations from scripture. Um, these are, this is how things ought to be. Wisdom and poetry, and I kind of group those together. We'll talk about those as a unit. Prophecy, and um, prophecy, as we look at prophecy, we'll see that's kind of um, two of these, probably more than others, are a little bit of a, uh, can sometimes be a minefield to interpret, prophecy being one of those. Epistle, or we talked about last week, that's a letter, and so that's just something that is just like a letter you would write to your friends. It's a letter. Um, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic would be something that is, um, well, we'll get to it. Apocalyptic literally means to be revealed. Apocalypse is to reveal something. And so we'll look at what that specifically means in terms of a biblical genre. Jewish theologians divided the Old Testament into three basic categories. So these were the, um, this was the way that they broke down the Old Testament. So if you read from the New Testament, we're going to see here Luke 24. These are the three primary categories. You have the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law is Genesis through Deuteronomy. The prophets are divided up into major, minor, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. This is how this would be categorized in the, um, in, by Jewish theologians. And then the Psalms. Um, and I included the Hebrew words there that I will not try to pronounce tonight. Um, so the Psalms would be Psalm, what we would call Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, as well as some other historical narratives like Ruth, Esther, portions of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Chronicles. And if you look at Luke 24, 44, uh, this is Jesus speaking. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so we see here the breakdown that he gives, the law of the prophet, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And what he's taking, speaking of is the Old Testament. So he's grouping them all into these three specific categories. So let's go ahead and um, let's jump into um, helps for studying the genres, studying the genres. Let's begin with our historical narrative. And I included um, books of the Bible that either include historical narrative or are primarily historical narrative right here. And just over a third of the Bible. So this is the most common category. Over a third of the Bible is a, it's a story, right? And so it's told so-and-so did this and then this happened and they said this to this individual. And as we go into understanding a narrative, we want some helps for interpreting a narrative. First, we want to understand the big picture. Understand the big picture. And here's what this is. Um, and I, um, sometimes I talk about this being the Old Testament in 10 minutes or less. We, did, we talked about this a little bit last week. So um, we're just going to walk through A through H here really quickly. But there are certain periods of history that we look at and we can divide these things into. At the very beginning of the Bible, if you were to open it up, Right now, you would find Genesis 1 through about Genesis uh, 11. Um, you're going to have immediately after the flood. Um, what you're going to have is you're going to have early Genesis. And so you have the creation of Adam and Eve. You have the fall. You have all of these things that took place very early on, all the way up to Noah and the flood. Now, on the other side of Noah and the flood, we're introduced to a man by the name of Abraham. And mid to late Genesis all covers Abraham's family. Abraham, Jacob, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, left out one of them, um, to Joseph at the end of Genesis. And then Exodus through Deuteronomy is mostly about Moses. This is leading the people out of the promised land, into the promised land, out of Egypt, and the giving of the law. From there, Israel enters into a period of the judges as Joshua leads them into the promised land. We have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth that all take place during this period. And then 1 Samuel is kind of a transitional phase from the period of the judges into the story of David and the story of Solomon. And then after Solomon, um, after his time as king, which it takes, he, um, he, his rule ends in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 11 or at the end of 1 Chronicles. And at the end of this, we find the divided kingdom. So after Solomon, two uh, divisions take place where the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel are split from each other. And this continues until eventually God allows the northern kingdom to be conquered by Assyria and the southern kingdom to be brought into captivity in Babylon. Um, now, the primary books, the primary narrative book that we have um, concerning the Babylonian captivity is going to be the book of Daniel. Um, the other book that records a lot of this is more of a prophet, but Ezekiel takes place in the same time frame. And then uh, we have the return and the post-exilic period. That's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So these are all narratives that take place after the people of God have been able to go back to Jerusalem. And so uh, for the Old Testament, that's really the story of the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot that takes place, but it all kind of charts along a linear path. And so as we study the Bible, we are able to become more familiar with the way that these things take place. And that can bring us here um, into um, a better understanding of these narratives. So as we go into this, um, let's look at determining the main point. Determining the main point. As we ask questions of a narrative, um, sometimes it can be easy for us to um, just say, well, so-and-so did this, so I ought to do that. Um, and uh, number three, we'll talk about that a little more. But if I can just say, that's not always a good idea. 
Um, and sometimes um, we might over-spiritualize some stories and we're just like, oh yeah, this story, well, the giant, the giants in your life and you're David and you got to go conquer the giants in your life. And um, that's not always the best way to take and approach a story from the Old Testament. And so as we do this, what we want to do is, first of all, begin to ask the questions, what can I learn about God? What can I learn about God? Secondly, how does this relate to the big picture? Last week, we talked about the big picture, um, and those notes are available. I can get you a hard copy of them, or we can, you can get those online. Um, if you go to our podcast, we have all of that. But if you remember last week, we talked about the big picture of the Bible. We talked about how we had creation, fall, redemption, and then new creation. And so if we had to boil all of the Bible, 66 books, thousands of years down to its basic core components, we're looking at creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And so what we see is we see that pattern in Scripture. So how does this, whatever you're studying, relate to this main picture? And then let her see, what should my response be? What should my response be? How should I respond to or approach the scriptures as they say these things to me? How do I turn around? How do I respond? How do I react to the scripture here? Number three, we need to discern between descriptive and prescriptive elements. Discern between descriptive and prescriptive elements. Um, so what's something that's um, descriptive? What is that word? Someone want to be the English scholar in the room? What's something that's descriptive? It does what? It Someone say describes. Can you define a word by its def by its? Uh, it's all right. Uh, it describes something, right? And so um, it's it just tells us about a story. So, um, for example, um, if we go to a New Testament narrative, I, I remember hearing one time um, someone was telling a story about bad Bible study, and they were like, "Oh, don't just open your Bible and grab whatever and point to." And then and they gave an example of how someone flipped open the Bible, pointed their finger, and read. Um, Judas went and hanged himself. Okay. All right. Um, great. Let's do it again. Let's, I don't know what to get from that. They open their Bible again. They point, find a spot and it says, go and do likewise. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. God is not confirming that in your life. God is not telling you that's not, that's not how we read scripture. Um, and so what we find is we find a description um, of an event in that example of Judas, right? That's a descriptive event. Um, if we look at, for example, this is one, um, one question that maybe you've been asked. Why, um, why did people have multiple spouses? Why, especially why did men have multiple wives in the Old Testament? Doesn't mean polygamy is endorsed or polygamy is okay. Well, nowhere do you see a blessing for having multiple wives. <laughs> what do you always see? You always see, uh, you always see, excuse me, what was that, Joy? It's a train wreck. <laughs> Um, what do you see? I mean, look at, look at all of the times that it takes place. You look at Rachel and Leah, uh, what happens between the two of them. There's a lot of conflicts. There's a lot of tension. Um, you look at Solomon and he had a number of wives and they, they pulled his heart every which way. And so we don't see that ever as being something that God says, go take multiple wives and behave in this manner. So what, we, what do we find? We find that being descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay. A prescriptive element is an area of belief or behavior that we should follow after. And oftentimes what we'll find with uh, prescriptive elements, if you go and you say, well, the Old Testament gives me this story, and so I think it means this, oftentimes what you'll find is that it will connect to some sort of New Testament 
command or a model of behavior that we should follow after, okay? And so oftentimes it is attached. If it's someone that you should be following after modeling that behavior, it's attached to something else, okay? So don't just grab something rogue and say, I should behave this way. Um, there's a story um, in the Old Testament of how David, um, Saul told David to go, um, before he could marry his daughter, to go out and to gather um, Philistine foreskins, okay? That's not a, a prescriptive story, okay? Um, don't follow that as a model for your life. Any questions on um, historical narrative? I know we're moving quick. I want to make sure we get through everything. All right. Uh, let's go into the law. The law tonight. So um, the law, this is the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes they're referred to as the Pentateuch. Um, that's a word that kind of came about later. Um, Pentateuch, Pentateuch meaning five. These are the five books. or so the books of Moses is often what these are called. Most of what we would consider law are found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Okay. Um, half of Exodus is also narrative. Numbers is primarily narrative. Um, but a lot of specifically parts of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy are what we would call law. So here, um, as we go through this, this is one that's oftentimes um, a little bit confusing for people. Uh, because we say, okay, why is there a law that was given in the Old Testament, but we don't follow that in the New Testament? We kind of touched on this just a little bit last week. So first, um, we have to go into the law and understand the primary purposes of the law. And here they are. Number one, letter A, they reveal the character of God. The law reveals the character of God. It helps us to be able to understand who God is better. All right? Letter B, the law restrains from sin, which ties in with letter C. The law reveals what is pleasing to God. And so we see God revealing himself through law. Finally, uh, or I'm sorry, secondly, as we look at laws, especially as we look at interpreting for today, but we want to look at, um, there's specifically, sometimes it can be broken down into three types of law. And I'll tell you some strengths and weaknesses of looking at it this way. First, there's a civil law. And so this is governing national Israel. Now, civil law um, in Israel does not directly correlate necessarily to civil law today. Does that mean that um, none of the civil laws are valuable for government? That's not what I'm saying. Um, but when we look at Israel, Israel was a theocracy. Who was the king of Israel? God right? Um, are we in a theocracy? Who is the king of America? I mean, we all wish it were God, right? <laughs> We'd be a lot better off if that were the case. Um, in America, we have this, it's a really uh, incredible system, as you and I know. Um, we the people, right? Um, here's what we also know about the people, um, according to the Bible. Um, the people are sinful and wicked, and, and that includes us, and so we have this convoluted, it just is what it is. And so civil laws are governing specifically national Israel. This brings us, um, secondly, we have ceremonial laws. And so these are religious laws that pointed people towards Jesus. And so what do these ceremonial laws do? These were laws that specifically dealt with cleanness, uncleanness, helped to understand sin, pointed, ultimately pointed towards Christ. Um, and so actually we're stepping into, um, I believe soon we're stepping into the season of um, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement on the Jewish calendar. And so that's a, uh, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. This is when um, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies um, or the most holy place and would take a sacrifice in there and offer the blood of that sacrifice on the mercy seat. Um, and that sacrifice would be offered in front of the people. Um, and so a big, long-standing thing. Well, that's a ceremonial law. Do we offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices today? But we would say that was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus came to be the final sacrifice 
and Hebrews would affirm that for us in the New Testament. And then finally, the moral law. And this is how men interact with God and other men. And so we look at, for example, the Ten Commandments. Um, we would look at all those, and those are all moral laws. Um, they say, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, bear false witness, don't have any other gods before me, remember the Sabbath day, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, these are three primary designations. Here's a weakness in only identifying them this way. When you open up one of these passages of the scripture, what you're going to find is that oftentimes you'll find what we would look at under this category as being a moral law beside a ceremonial law beside a civil law. And they're all just kind of packed in there together. So when we're looking at, okay, how do I apply this? I, I, I don't know that it's wise for us to say, well, I can't apply that, but then the next one I can apply and kind of um, based on only our reasoning, say this is moral and that's ceremonial and this is and begin to isolate each of these. I, I think that that leaves open a lot of room for potentially rejecting laws that ought to be in place or attempting to hold laws that ought to be done away with over both ourselves and other believers. And so here's what I would recommend as we're going into application of Old Testament laws. Number three, seek New Testament correlation or fulfillment. Seek New Testament correlation or fulfillment. Um, letter A, the Old Testament doesn't divide the law. Okay, so the Old Testament doesn't say here are ceremonial laws, here are moral laws, here are. So these are classifications that we kind of impose on the Old Testament. They don't exist in its original form. But then when we come to the New Testament, you know what we find over and over in the New Testament? We find the theme of the law. And so Matthew, um, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, um, if you've been a part of that study that we went through last school year, uh, when we hit the Sermon on the Mount, there are laws that Matthew specifically uh, speaks of. And so he says, um, I'm not only telling you don't commit adultery, I'm telling you don't commit adultery in your heart. I'm not only telling you don't kill, I'm saying don't be angry. And so what is he doing? He's affirming these elements of the law of the Old Testament. He's saying these aren't done away with, these continue to exist. He speaks of um, all of the law and the prophets, how they hang on the first two commandments of love the Lord thy God, love your neighbor as yourself. And these are a summary of the first four and the second six, the latter six laws of the um, Ten Commandments. Okay. And so we see these correlations between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so why don't we last week mentioned very briefly why, uh, how many of you love bacon? All right. We like bacon in here. Um, well, Old Testament law, that's not kosher. Well, we look at the book of Acts and Jesus told Peter, this vision came to Peter and said, arise, Peter, kill and eat the things that I have made clean. Don't you dare call unclean. Um, and this was symbolic of the calling of the Gentiles. And also we would interpret that today as being a doing away with of the dietary restrictions found in the Old Testament law. Okay. Clear as mud, drinking from a fire hydrant. <laughs> A lot of information. Um, anyone have any questions on interpreting law? Okay. Um, if you have questions, I'll be around for a little bit afterwards tonight. Feel free to ask. Okay. Wisdom and poetry. Wisdom and poetry. Um, wisdom literature and poetry overlap in scripture consistently. Most tend to be predominantly one with elements of the other. Um, and a little note in here. Um, limitations would be the closest to a balance of both wisdom and poetry. But uh, what we find is oftentimes they are interrelated. But let's go ahead and I want to jump into um, what we call uh, wisdom literature first. 
Um, and so in wisdom literature, there are primarily two books of the Bible that contain wisdom literature. Who, uh, I mean, you can look and you can see on the paper there, but what are the two primary wisdom books in the Bible? There's an Old Testament one and a New Testament one. Proverbs, all right. Proverbs is very big on wisdom over and over and over again. Major theme in Proverbs is also a New Testament wisdom book that many people don't realize is a wisdom book. And that's the book of James, the book of James. Um, and in fact, um, tell me if this is from Proverbs or James. I'm going to read a scripture and tell me if it's from Proverbs or James. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs or James. How many of you say Proverbs? How many of you say James? How many of you say I have no idea? <laughs> um, so direct quote, that's coming from James, but it's very similarly also in Proverbs. All right, Steve. Um, it is also in the Proverbs. It is actually, um, so direct quote, that one is from James. It's worded a little different in Proverbs, um, but the same principle is there. Um, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Proverbs or James? Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Proverbs or James? How many of you say Proverbs? How many of you say James? How many of you say I have no idea? That one's Proverbs. <laughs> um, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Proverbs or James? How many of you say James? Anyone say Proverbs? It is James. Right, that's a pretty well-known passage if you're familiar with the book of James. If you don't know, hey, you're fine. Don't. Uh, my point is this. The two books are very similar. Um, that's what I want you to come away with. Not, oh, no, I have no idea about the two. They're very similar. Uh, we ought to notice an overlap. They sound similar. And if you're familiar with one of the verses or passages, you might be able to say, yep, I know where that one is. And so, great. Um, but just the voice of them has a lot in common. Okay. Um, as we look at the book of Proverbs, Proverbs are what, um, both of these are what we would call um, proverbial wisdom. And that's the short, pithy sayings with general rules or pers for personal well-being and godliness. So James, is, or I'm sorry, Proverbs especially, gives statements about how life usually works. Okay? Um, so this is about how life usually works. So Proverbs 1, 8, 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. They are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Um, now, as a general rule of thumb, should you listen to your parents, as a child especially? Yes. Um, I, there are probably some people in here who have had lousy parents. If you haven't, then you probably know people that have. So should they listen to everything that their parents say? Like, Phil, listen, I'm your dad. Um, I mean, it, it, there are plenty of times where parents, and it's really unfortunate and sad, but parents, there's the exception to the rule, right? Where the parent, where parents try to get their kids to do something illegal or immoral or whatever. And so we don't want to think about those instances, but there are those times. And so as we look at the Proverbs, this is what they are, is they're not necessarily promises. This is the way life usually works. Another one is um, train up a child in the way that they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. So does that mean that no kid that's ever been raised by godly parents will ever walk away from their faith or make bad decisions? Is that what that means? No. No. I know plenty of people in here, godly men and women, that their kids made decisions different than theirs. Um, that's how it is. 
And so as we look at that, it's the way life usually works. Kids raised in a godly home do have more likelihood to succeed and continue to follow God. Um, but it's not that, listen, uh, you obviously screwed it up because your kid's not following after Jesus the way that you are. Okay. So it's the way life usually works. James gives similar things, but these are also tied in with statements about life in light of the gospel of Jesus. And so he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so again, this is how life usually tends to work, especially in the light of the gospel of Jesus. Letter B, um, we go into speculative wisdom, speculative wisdom. And so Proverbs and James are where people tend to go um, for wisdom because they're very practical, very hands-on, very digestible. Job and Ecclesiastes are a little more philosophical, okay? Um, Job walks through the tests of wisdom claims of Proverbs through the lens of suffering. So Job just suffers and suffers and suffers and suffers, right? For 40 chapters, he's, God, why are you letting this happen to me? And so we see him kind of even coming up against some of the wisdom of Proverbs within that book where he's going, and although Proverbs wouldn't be written until later, some of the same principles he's drawing out, he's like, God, listen, why are you allowing me to do this? And he's testing these wisdoms through the lens of suffering. Ecclesiastes is testing these wisdom claims through the lens of skepticism, skepticism. And so Ecclesiastes is saying, okay, God, is this really the way that I ought to behave and I ought to live? He's evaluating life, and he's always evaluating these claims of Proverbs. Um, as we go into this, biblical wisdom is never intellectual attainment alone at the beginning of your next page. It's a way of living in harmony with God and others. And so uh, biblical wisdom is never just for us to be puffed up and to have all of this knowledge and ability in ourselves, um, but it's to help us live in harmony with God and others. Number two, we have poetic literature, um, poetic literature. What we want to look for here, um, I need to pick up the pace just a little bit. I know you're like, pick up the pace, what do you mean? Um, poetic literature. What we have is we have figures, metaphors, hyperboles. Um, and so these are all different poetic terms. Watch this as we go to Psalm 91. It's a beautiful psalm. Um, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. How many of you have ever had an arrow shot at you? Only, if, only a few of you. Good. Awesome. Hey, listen, um, I mean, Corey, you're wearing a camo hat. Listen, we live in, we live in uh, a small town, Michigan. Listen, I get it. Okay, I'm not terribly surprised that some of you have. Um, I've had a gun pulled at me, so drawn at me, so, I mean, it happens. Um, by a police officer. Uh, okay, so I'm not kidding, actually. I'll tell you that later if you want to hear it. Um, what is that saying, though? You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrows that fly by day. Is that saying don't be afraid of arrows being shot at you? What are the arrows supposed to be? Well, that's a metaphor for some sort of attack, some sort of opposition. Is it something specific? Um, they probably had something specific in mind when they're writing it, but it's meant to be a general application. It's meant to be vague. Uh, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, the destruction that wastes at noonday. Most of us um, are not worried about pestilence, right? Um, that's not our primary concern unless you are a farmer in agriculture, then you are worried about pestilence. And if you're not, then probably should still be worried about it at some times, um, but it's not the first thing in your mind, right? A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. All right. Anyone ever been in a situation where a thousand fell at your side and 10,000 at your right hand? 
No, that's, that's not. This is all metaphorical language. Uh, it's hyperbolic. It's exaggerated, but it's for a point. Um, letter B, Hebrew couplets of parallel lines are often employed. And so this is a little bit of a tricky thing to understand if this is a new concept for you. I would encourage you to go home and study it. I'm, I'm going to go through it just a little bit here. We can talk about it afterwards if you'd like. Um, but what this is, is um, in poetry today, what's the most common form of English poetry? Um, the rain in Spain falls mostly on the plain, right? What's the front? It's rhyming, right? So it's rhyming, especially with sounds, okay? Um, Hebrew poetry doesn't work that way. Um, Hebrew poetry, it's really, really interesting. Um, it actually rhymes ideas or concepts. So whereas English poetry is mostly, especially in its most basic forms, about rhyming words, Hebrew poetry rhymes in concepts. And, and think about this. Think about this. If the Bible, especially like the Psalms, are written with like English poetry in mind, you're going to have rhyming of words that doesn't translate into any other language, right? <laughs> Could you imagine taking like a, you can't take... English poems and easily translate them to another language. If you read some ancient poems or if you ever read anything like um, some of the long ancient epics that have been translated into English, um, there are like a hundred different versions of it, and a lot of them take a lot of liberty to make it sound like poetry in English. Hebrew poetry doesn't function that way because it rhymes in thought, not necessarily in the specific word used. And so, for example, we have the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And so what we find here, if you go to letter C, um, there's more than one rhyming type. What we find there, that's an example of, it's called synonymous parallelism, which just means this. It's being restated. And so that thought is being said over again. Um, another example of this, Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so what are the heavens? What is the sky? Those are the same thing. And there's proclaiming the handiwork of God, the glory of God. It's repeated for emphasis. Um, number two, there we have antithetic, which here's just what that means. Complicated word just means it's a contrast. So whoever walks with the wise will become wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. It's poetry just because it's contrasting these two. Proverbs 13, 20. And then finally, you have um, synthetic, which just is like kind of restating or building an idea. And so I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Salah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And so it's the continuation of thought, kind of building that thought, okay? Um, and so there's a, when we learn to read and study the poetic books with this poetry in mind, um, it, takes, it takes time and discipline, um, Joe, you were in our group when we studied through Proverbs, right? And the first time we started talking about these things, I mean, it's like, it feels like it's like up here, right? And then as we got further into, we studied through in our small group through Proverbs together um, back in the spring, I believe. Oh, it was like last fall, huh? That was a while ago. <laughs> um, but the more you get into it, the more you kind of get at practice and it kind of begins to feel more natural and it makes more sense, Okay. Um, and so don't be intimidated by it. Um, let it kind of marinate, and eventually you'll find yourself um, being able to just kind of skim through that and be able to have an understanding of it. It'll always take a little bit of work because it's so unnatural for us English speakers. Um, so it'll always take a little bit of work, um, and that's okay. So don't feel like, oh, it's not the easiest thing in the world. It, it won't be, but that's okay. You'll get better at it as you practice, okay? 
prophecy. Um, prophecy. I mean, here we're looking at a lot of the Old Testament. We have, in, in fact, two whole groups of the Old Testament that we call the major and minor prophets. Um, does anyone know the difference between the major and minor prophets? The reason for the classification. Some are important, some are unimportant, right? Some are major, some are minor. Some are happy, some are sad, like major minor chords. That's it. Uh, major prophets, you ready for this? Buckle up. Are longer. <laughs> I mean, that's the gist of it. That's really it. Um, the minor prophets actually at one time were just a, where they were one book for a period of time. They all were all considered one writing. And so the major prophets, literally, they're longer. That's the difference. Okay. Um, how do we interpret prophecy then? How do we go at it? Number one, this is really, really important. Determine between foretelling and forth telling. So there's two different types of prophecy. Number one, foretelling is speaking about future events. So when we think of prophecy, we think of like, oh, there's this prophecy and they said this is going to happen. But speaking of future events, that does happen in prophetic books. But a lot of it's what we would maybe call forth telling. So this is applying God's truth to God's people. So like um, when I or someone that we invite to speak on a Sunday morning gets up here and opens the Bible with us, that's being prophetic as long as they are taking what God is saying and applying it to the lives of the people hearing it. That's being prophetic. Are they telling the future? No. <laughs> Um, I cannot tell the future, okay? I can see trends, I can see this and that, just like you can. Uh, but I'm lousy at telling the future, just like you are, all right? Um, and so the most prophecy is actually applying God's, God's truth to his people. Number two, determine between what has already been fulfilled and what is awaiting fulfillment. Um, as we look at the scripture, there's a lot of the scripture that has already been fulfilled, especially in the person of Christ, and so we look at the Old Testament prophecies and we look and we say, okay, this was fulfilled in Christ. And then we also um, look at some things that are awaiting fulfillment. And so even in the Old Testament, there are prophecies that are related to things that haven't happened yet. Um, there are things that we see and uh, we're just like, that's not here because we're still awaiting fulfillment of those things. Um, number three, determine what is likely figurative and what is likely literal. Um, and so in one vision, um, there is a, uh, a statue that is made of all kinds of different types of metal. And there's different, uh, not just metal, but different stone, different substances, clay. Um, is that saying someone's going to build the statue that's made out of these specific? No. Um, and in fact, um, if you go and you study, you find that these are actually specifically, there's an interpretation to the vision that's given. Okay. Number four, um, remember that most prophecies are not directly attached to a timeline. Be careful to let prophecies be fulfilled as God intended without forcing them to fit present context, if not meant to be. Um, and so oftentimes, here's one of the funny things about prophecy, especially when we look at, um, I think one of the best ways we can kind of get a grasp on this is looking at how Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus and looking at how the disciples and looking at how the early church interpreted Old Testament prophecy, I think that should give us some insight in how do we apply prophecy today. Um, and what we'll find is this. Um, oftentimes prophecy it tends to be one of those things that when you see it, you go, oh, duh. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you can sit down and say, this is exactly how everything's going to map out. Okay. Um, and so when we look at, for example, um, people, there were prophecies about how Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, um, how he would, um, there were prophecies um, about 
um, the shepherds and the angels, the prophecies about just all kinds of different elements of his coming, his lineage, all these different things. And so why wasn't anyone standing right there when Jesus was born and being like, yeah, here's the time we figured it all out and we cracked the code and here it is. Like that, did that happen? Was there just a crowd there and they were like, oh, it's today. They all just figured it out. Is that what happened? No. But then on the other side of it, Matthew was like, duh, how did we miss this? Right? Um, I think often in prophecy, that's how it's going to be even for us. As we watch things unfold, um, I think oftentimes what's going to happen is we're going to be like, how did we miss that? Okay. Um, that's, and some of that's uh, opinion there, but we want to be careful as we, that we attach it appropriately or as it was meant to be attached. Um, historical narrative in the New Testament. I'm going to hit this really quick. We talked some about it last week. It's not quite as complex as the old. Um, we look at the Gospels. These are considered bios. It's an ancient biography focused on key events of a person's life. Um, we see the chronology of it. Matthew is arranged topically at I'm sorry, Mark is arranged topically at times, whereas Matthew and Luke are mostly chronological. We see some harmony in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So these Gospels tell very much the same story or the same accounts, whereas John is kind of out here on his own. Um, and so if you have to imagine the four gospel writers kind of sitting down, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke sitting at a table and kind of comparing notes, and you have John who's over in the corner doing his own thing, and I don't care what you guys are writing, I'm going to write what I want to write, okay? Um, all inspired, all scripture, um, but just very different approaches to the writing, which is really cool. Book of Acts, we have legitimization, and so this is a specific genre of um, ancient literature that's intended to defend and legitimize the ancient church. And so this is writing and connecting the early church to Jesus. So that's why the book of Acts was written. Um, if you want to look for a why, the book of Acts was written to validate the early church and say, hey, we go back to Jesus. And so where the gospel leaves off, and Luke wrote the book of Acts, and so he says, hey, I got you all the way up to the resurrection and the ascension in Luke, and then Acts comes in and kind of overlaps it just a little bit, and then we away we go. And so it's considered a legitimization book, and especially in ancient cultures, had a lot to do with the church being able to say, this is our history, this is where we came from. And then it's characterized by the moving of the Holy Spirit through the first generation of Jesus' disciples. And so as you read the book of Acts, look for the Holy Spirit. Um, look for the ways that the Holy Spirit moves. Look for obedience to the Holy Spirit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Massive theme in the book of Acts. If you're not looking for that, you're just going to miss the point. Um, epistles, and this is most of the New Testament. Um, as we look at this, we want to follow the author's interpretation of the gospel. So who was or who is Jesus? How does it affect me? Take note, we spoke of last week, the indicative imperative pattern. So indicative, this is what is true, and imperative is how I respond to the truth. Um, and so we want to look and see about what is true. How do I respond to it there? And then finally, apocalyptic. Um, and this is an intimidating one for many, um, often because it's, it's just, if we're being honest here, kind of confusing. A lot of symbolism, it's a lot of um, metaphor, hyperbole, word picture, um, and uh, we want to understand the background of it. Um, Daniel takes place in the Babylonian captivity. So Daniel's being written as Daniel is not in Jerusalem and Judea, and as he is waiting for, along with the rest of the Jews, for God to restore his people and his nation. Revelation is the persecution of the early church awaiting Jesus' return. And so this is, Revelation is the last book of the New Testament written, um, written about AD 90, so 90 AD, year of our Lord. Um, and so this is written by a man named John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. And he's writing this while he's in exile, okay? So he's 
on an island known as Patmos, um, and there's a vision that's revealed to him. Um, and that word revelation, in fact, just it means this. It means a revealing. Um, it all comes from the Greek word. Um, is um, I'm going to butcher it, so I'm not going to try it. Um, but basically, it comes from the same term as apocalypse. So apocalypse, revelation are the same. They're basically the same word. It means a revealing. It means this veil was pulled back. And so if you read the book of Revelation, we find that a veil was pulled back and John was able to see specific things that were meant for him to see. Um, and there's a lot that goes into, I mean, we could take, uh, we could take weeks just looking at the ways to interpret Revelation and apocalyptic literature. Um, there's a lot of thoughts on there, so we won't press deeply into it. But as you read through it, understand there are multiple genres that actually take place in these books. So both Revelation and Daniel, neither one of them are purely apocalyptic literature. There's other things happening here. Um, there is prophetic literature in it. There's narrative. There are stories being told within these, these pieces of literature. And then there are even epistles. Um, and so especially the book of Revelation, the first, um, the end of chapter one, chapters two and three are all letters to churches. Um, and they're letters to real churches um, that existed in real places. Um, specifically Asia Minor. There are seven churches that were in real cities containing real people, and there's a history behind those specific churches. Um, and so letter, I'm sorry, number three, letter three, um, we want to understand the purpose of these. Both are written in cultures asking, where is God? Okay? Both are written in cultures asking, where is God? Um, is that a question that we can ask today? <laughs> we can look around and we can go, where's God? God, where are you? Um, sometimes in our personal lives, we just sit back and we go, God, where are you? Sometimes nationally and geopolitically, we, sit, we look around and we go, God, where are you? Um, and so these books ought to be comforting books for us. And you look at it, you're like, well, Revelation's scary. I mean, hey, some of the imagery is, for sure. Um, both of these books, here's what I, want, what, I want, what I want you to see. Both of these books reveal God at work. Okay? Both of these books reveal God at work. So you look at these, and these are cultures that they're being written to that says, where is God? And both of them, um, both of them are God pulling back to veil to say, here's what I'm doing, which is a really beautiful, really cool thing um, that hopefully will shed a little bit of light or give you some direction as you try to conquer a couple of really difficult books. Okay? Let's go ahead and um, let's pray, and uh, we will wrap up. I gave you at the very end some genres in Scripture, just kind of a cheat sheet there, and so you can look at that for any of the uh, books that you are working your way through. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together tonight and to look at some of the genres of Scripture. Um, Lord, as we do so, I know there's a lot of information, a lot to swallow, a lot of content, a very dense um, study. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help us as we go into it, as we open up the Bible for ourselves. Help us to be able to utilize this information wisely, be able to grow and mature as a result of just having the tools to be able to read the Bible and study the Bible for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you bless the rest of our time together tonight. Um, I thank you for this church, this body that we can just gather together and be a part of. We ask everything in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.